Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Murky fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about honesty, values, and the complexities of relationship. I've been thinking about the risks and sacrifices of owning your power and the bountiful rewards. I've been thinking about nature in all its wonder, harshness, and glory, about trying to control our surroundings and the freedom and speed in letting go of certainty and going with the flow of the river, or in this particular case, the creek. My guest today is Scott Freeman. He is a professor of biology at the University of Washington and the author of Saving Tarboo Creek, One Family's Quest to Heal the Land. Welcome, Scott, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. So I've been thinking it's a quest, maybe, to heal more than the land that you and your wife, the illustrator of your book, Susan Leopold Freeman, embarked upon. And I'm wondering how the journey has changed you, your relationship, and your family. Wow, you've gotten right to the heart of the matter, because that's, that's actually, answering that question <clears throat> is why I wrote the book. Um, because it, it's, on one level, I wanted to tell the story of what we did, we, we, in 2004, we uh, came upon this beat-up, ditched uh, creek overgrown with invasive plants and thorns, and um, where one of the three species of salmon that used to breed there had been extinct. And so on one level, <clears throat> the book is about what we did uh, and all the, the work and the sweat and the tears and joys of doing that kind of work to, to bring a piece of damaged land back to back to life. But the other really big piece of, of this story is why. Um, so it's beyond what we're doing into, into why would you spend your weekend pulling Blackberry and going to work on Monday morning with scratches all over your face. So <clears throat> yeah, you got right to the heart of the matter. And, and to us, you know, to answer that question, I always, come down to when you do this kind of work and throw your heart and soul into it and you do it with a group of people who are important to you, whether they're part of your immediate family or people you just met um, because they answered a call for volunteers. Um, when we make those connections with the land to make a bad place better and we make those connections with each other, we, we get better. It's, it's a, I think you feel more like a whole human being and someone who's going to leave something for generations to come. So throughout the book, Saving Tarbu Creek, as as you read through, you're more, the reader is more and more aware of all the connections in nature and even within one small piece of, of nature, within a tree or within a shrub or within a, a frog or a crane, and we'll get to all those. And, and there are those connections that, from the beginning of the book, um, are um, deep and intriguing. And one is the the family line with your father-in-law, Carl Leopold, who the book is, is dedicated mm-hmm. to. And um, your uncle was a student of Aldo Leopold, the author of A Sound uh, County Almanac. And so there seems to be some destiny there uh, in the almanac. He says, the only lasting solution has to come from ethics, from the depth of the human heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those words really resonate today. And you, yeah, so the, oh, the, go ahead. The, the connection does go back. Uh, so the story really starts in, in 1935 when Aldo Leopold and 
his family bought a beat-up old abandoned farm, Dust Bowl era farm in central Wisconsin. Um, the, the previous owner had had um, basically ruined the land and walked away from it, and the Leopold family bought it for back taxes for eight dollars an acre in 1935. And then they set to work. They planted tens of thousands of trees and brought prairie plants back. It was the uh, as far as I can tell, I think it's it's true. It's, it was the first attempt at ecological restoration, actually bringing native plants and animals back to a place that had ever been attempted in history. So the the, the those connections you're talking about really start. Uh, well, my my boys now are the fourth generation of Leopolds who've engaged in this kind of work in this kind of community. And our conversation today is going to be focused on restoration. We're going to kind of go back and forth between present, past, future. Um, uh-huh. and, and we'll start maybe with just laying out one of the facts in the book that, um, or, or uh, assumptive facts maybe at this point, that's future, so it could change, that in 2100, human population will pass 11 billion, and half the species alive today will be extinct. Or, as you say, they may be. And that word may um, runs mm-hmm. through the book and, and ends the book. And I think that's what's so fantastic is the optimism and the the realities, as you read through, of the direness of the potential of the future and, and of accurately the current situation, but the 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 really optimistic possibilities for the future. Um, you say the challenges of this century are a product of the past century's successes. How, how is that so in your mind? Well, we've gotten um, very powerful as a species and very wealthy as a species compared to historical norms. Um, and those are great successes. And the, the advances in medicine and um, physical well-being globally, um, you know, global rates of poverty are at all-time lows. Those are, these are fantastic things that have happened that, that have benefited people all over the planet. But at the same time, we have human populations that are exploding and our use of fossil fuels is, is changing the climate in fundamental ways that are already having drastic effects with intensity of hurricanes and forest fires and so forth. Um, you know, all of us, almost everyone is feeling it some way or another. And if you look at all those trends or species extinctions and say, if present trends continue, then yes, by the time uh, today's children are grandparents, things will be bad. Uh, There's no question in in, in the data. But it's that if, as you say, that may, uh, if present trends continue. But human beings, when we realize something's wrong, usually we're really good at getting after it and getting to a solution. It's it's never easy. It's never clean and simple. But usually we will respond to the challenge when we realize it really matters. And I think that's what's going on right now in a lot of people's hearts is realizing we can't keep doing what we're doing in terms of population growth and exploiting habitats and burning fossil fuels. And there's a really optimistic sort of future to be made in, in changing what we do because one of the points I try to make in the book is that, is that it's really all about values, about what you care about, what you think is cool, what you admire. And for a long time, I think especially in the U.S., it's been about consumption, like how much stuff do you have, how big is your car, how big is your house. Um, and I think that's really sort of played out in terms of people's values and happiness. And, and there's one quote that just slayed me that, I was actually at a having friends uh, a dinner with friends, and one of the guys there was a was a physician, and he said, "Oh, I just saw a report from the Centers for Disease Control 
And he said, it turns out that 11% of, uh, I think it's people in the U.S. above the age of 12, 12% are using prescription antidepressants. And I, that, that number just knocked me on the floor. I said, something is wrong. I, I think if, it's actually 20%. Um, I was funny, just, just as we began the interview, I was listening to an interview on Democracy Now! with Johan Hari, who was on the show a week ago, yeah. wrote a book called Lost Connections, and they just, they just quoted it at um, 20%. Wow. Yeah, my, my 11% was actually, I was just checking. Was, yeah, those data are old. That was 2005, 2008. So it's so doubled. It's doubled. Wow, wow, wow. So you, you look at a figure like that and you think, and, and you look at the symptoms of depression, it's a really serious disease. It's awful. Um, I mean, people are feeling terrible and having to take medication to try to, to try to get, come to terms with it. And so to me, that, that's a symptom. That's something's fundamentally wrong with how we're organizing our lives and, and what we think is important. Um, so again, this book is just a sort of gentle, I hope, gentle way of um, getting people to think about what really is most important to me. Um, what do I really care about? And what do I want my great-grandchildren or folks in my community 100 years from now? I want them to be happy that I was here planting trees or restoring habitats or taking care of a little creek in our neighborhood. I love that you talk about um, historically the way things were and then the consequences of that and the paths that nature takes in relationship to what's happening in its environment and also history. And Carl uh, Leopold plays a great role in that. You talk about him being part of the greatest generation and Mm. the amazing people that they were and the amazing things that they created, but then maybe some of the unintended consequences or follow-ons of where they led us as a nation and that it will actually take mm-hmm. even a greater generation, our children and grandchildren, to steer us in, in a, a healthy direction as a, as, a, as a world. Yeah, I was picking up on some some commentary of very thoughtful people who, who, as you say, really acknowledge what this generation did. So my, my father-in-law, Carl Leopold, was um, you know, helping his family plant trees on this farm in central Wisconsin as a family project. And then he had just started college when World War II broke out, when, when Pearl Harbor was attacked. And he enlisted in the Marines immediately and spent four years in the Pacific in, as, a, in the, as an artillery officer. And, you know, I think about if I were 21 or 22 and this happened, you think, well, I didn't ask for this, you know, but we have to go. We have to defeat totalitarianism before we can start our lives. And so that, that is just an amazing thing that that generation did um, that all of us are, are grateful for now. Um, but on the other hand, when the war ended and, and the 1950s started, I think, you know, these people, had been through this generation had been through the depression. They'd gone through a world war. Um, and I think the, what, what happened is that people said, well, we've been sacrificing for decades. We've been, um, risking our lives in a lot of cases. And now we want to be comfortable. We want to, we want to sort of live the good life as defined by, um, getting wealthier, having more stuff. And that I think is, as you said, that course turn of, of that generation that started a lot of the issues that we're dealing with now, 50 and 60 years later. And so 
that is one of the messages in my book where I think, well, if you're, if you're a young person now at that age, when Carl Leopold had to enlist in the Marines, you're looking at the world and saying, you know, there's a parallel here. I'm not going to have to go into the Marines and fight in the Pacific, but I may need to get busy with, with my community and start to take care of things like climate change and human population growth and resource use and fossil fuel use. So let's let's get down into the waters, um, so to speak, and, and talk about restoring a stream. It seemed like the first step needed is to assemble a team. It's something you're probably not going to be able to do on your own. That's right. We've been working with a, a really dynamic, uh, it's a husband and wife team, actually, um, headquartered in Port Townsend, Washington, and they run a group called Northwest Watershed Institute, and they've been instrumental at getting lots of government agencies, tribes, um, school kids, tons of volunteers involved in working on the entire watershed. Our family works on our our little areas, but we're part of a much bigger effort. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about what that path looks like. You introduce complexity, you lay down some nettings, and you start diverting the creek. Yeah, when we started in 2004, we bought a little 17-acre parcel, and it had the stretch of the creek that had been abused the most. It had, it had been ditched, and the, the water was flowing through um, this ditch so f- rapidly that it was actually scouring. And the first time we set foot out there, uh, we were a friend of ours uh, jumped down into the ditch, and she actually could not see her way out. Her feet were down in the creek, but, but it was, she was six feet under, and so was the creek. So that's where we started. And uh, Northwest Watershed Institute had a grant to bring an excavator in, you know, a machine that uh, the guy, Bob Harrison, who ran, ran the machine, digs basements most of the year, but he's a fisherman and understands streams. So he spends a couple months a year helping to restore salmon streams. So the excavator dug a new channel. So it was a natural sort of windy, sinuous course. And that was our first step. Then we started planting and, and went from there to try to bring this land back to life. So you say about salmon, there's poetry in Salmon Run. And, and I'm wondering in what respects have you found that? And um, there, because there seem to be also a number of mysteries. I thought that was one of the most informative and, and interest-peaking elements of the book, that the physical transformation that these fish make, um, their unique sensing system, their ability mm-hmm. to even change their response, their responsiveness to um, sensitivity to UV light and then blue wavelengths. Um, mm-hmm. so maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the poetry and mystery of the salmon. Yeah, salmon are amazing. I mean, the, the first thing you start with is that you, you'll see these little creeks or even bigger rivers, and they're quiet, no fish for months and months and months. And then all of a sudden, if, if it's a big run, um, when the salmon come back out of the ocean where they've been living and feeding sometimes for two, three years, when they come back to breed, they just appear. And it is almost as if by magic. Um, and sometimes in a big run, the river will just be teeming with them. I was talking to one of our neighbors out at Tarbo Creek, and she said, yeah, when I was a girl, I remember growing up uh, in the early 60s and sometimes it would seem like there were more fish than there was water. And or another neighbor said, uh, he, a really old guy now, said when he was growing up, he would sit in his upstairs bedroom window uh, with the window open during the salmon run, and he said, I couldn't sleep because of the splashing. I could hear the fish down there. It was so exciting. So there's this whole mystery of these these great big fish. This Turbo Creek is tiny. It's a little, little stream, but there'll be these eight, nine, ten pound fish 
um, making their way upstream. So that that is just a remarkable event. People just love the first time. Everybody remembers the first time they see a, a salmon run in progress. It's so striking. And then, as you say, they do this amazing transformation. They've been living in the ocean, so they're in salt water, and they have to cope with uh, uh, just their physiology and how they how they manage their water balance in their bodies. And then they convert to fresh water, where everything flips in terms of as you said, those types of light they see um, and uh, the challenge to their body of keeping hydrated in freshwater versus um, saltwater. So they, they are absolutely amazing animals. You talk about, um, too, which really get, gets one thing in about the connection of the salmon to everything else and the, the connection to the salmon's behavior to everything else, that the actions that they take in laying their eggs or going upstream or downstream, that this affects everything. So not only are they ecosystem engineers, which I thought was a fantastic term, you got to hashtag that, salmon ecosystem <laughs> engineers, um, but, but their health and productivity affects everything else in their, in their ecosystems. That's something that people, salmon biologists, you know, people have been studying salmon for a long time because they're so economically important in this part of the world. But um, something people are realizing just more recently is exactly the point you were making, is that, is that they're doing a lot besides making their own babies and then, and then dying in this mysterious transformation from freshwater to saltwater uh, and back again. But... For example, they're out feeding in the ocean and changing from tiny little fry that you know are like a, the size of your pinky when they go start in saltwater, and they come back and they're eight or ten or twelve pounds in some big rivers that they historically in my state in Washington they used to get to hundred pounds. So all that mass was created from nutrients in the ocean. They swim those nutrients up into freshwater and deposit them. So they're actually fertilizing the rivers and streams where they were born and and once after they die in the tree forest nearby because bears will come down and otters will come down and raccoons and cougars and uh, ravens and eagles and they'll pull those carcasses out of the water and deposit them in the forest and, and you, the trees are growing faster in those areas because the same are there to fertilize them. Maybe in connection with that, you can give us uh, a quick lesson on CO2 and what happens when we burn fossil fuel. And I, I thought, especially focused on the elements of, um, you know, how the air starts to move faster and heat up the atmosphere and the mm. earthworms, the heat's trapped, and the, the fact that then the sea levels rise and that this affects the different levels of what's happening at a deep water level and a surface water level, and then the, how that affected your plans for saving Tarboo Creek, because it seems like just mm. such a great example of the micro consequences of a macro action. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. When, we, when you put more CO2 in the air, when we burn fossil fuels, that's what we're doing. And those molecules, CO2 is carbon dioxide, is very efficient at absorbing infrared radiation, so the same radiation we use in heat lamps. So when sunlight strikes the Earth, a lot of it bounces off. That's why, you know, when you see a picture of the Earth from, from space, it's this beautiful blue orb. That's light that's coming back off the Earth back into space. So all that energy would be lost. But if there's more CO2 in the air, it will absorb it. And so that means it starts moving faster. It, it, war- it heats up those, those little CO2 molecules. And then that will warm the atmosphere. That's the greenhouse uh, gas effect that you've probably read about and heard about. 
So that warms the planet. And then, as you said, all sorts of other things start happening. One of which is that in, in the ocean for the salmon, one of the huge consequences is that, is that um, the CO2 will interchange with water. And when CO, if you bubble, like when you, when you drink a soda pop, if you bubble CO2 through water, it becomes acidic. So if you drink a soda, a cola, it, it has a bite. That's, that's acidity. That's from CO2 because it forms car, a compound called carbonic acid. So our oceans are becoming more acidic because there's more CO2 getting into the oceans. And that's bad for clams and mussels and shellfish and salmon. The big issue that's confronted us in Tarbu Creek the last couple of years is that the, the Pacific Ocean started to warm. There was a, a really anomalous, really unusual warming event that spread throughout the North Pacific, just off the coast of Canada, Alaska, and in the Pacific Northwest. And the, the oceanographers were calling it the blob, because from space, when they mapped it into the heat map, it looked like a blob. Um, and salmon um, don't like warm water. The warm water can't hold as much oxygen, so they're basically panting. You know, they're short of breath. Uh, if they're in warm water, they don't grow as fast. They're more susceptible. So, again, these examples where you just, well, we just put some more CO2 into the air. And then all these downstream consequences are what we're w- watching happen uh, to our world right now. Well, and I, and you said it even alters the nutrient level instead of where the nutrients are deposited and where they can be found. Yes, that's something um, that's coming up more and more in oceanographers are, are really looking at. this. this is gets a little tricky to talk through, but um, essentially oceans don't have many nutrients in them in general because, because if, if organisms that have nutrients die, um, then they fall to the bottom. And so then there aren't any nutrients left in the water. So what has to happen is what's called upwelling. The water in the bottom has to come to the top. And if water heats up at the surface because the air is warmer because of global warming, it becomes less dense. Basically, it's not, not as heavy. So it becomes lighter. Yeah. And so that, that warm water is lighter. So now, because it's lighter, that heavy water on the bottom is less likely to flip and be able to come up to the top and bring the nutrients with it. Um, and so again, one, another one of your examples of a little micro event, like adding some more CO2, has these just sort of stunning downstream consequences. So it's a tricky process. This is an extremely delicately balanced system, and we don't know all the factors. And, and I thought one of the most intriguing parts of the book was your experience throughout the years of uh, restoring the creek, that you kept coming across these challenges where you actually had to make some guesses. Um, and, and part of that were the trees and figuring out which trees to plant. Um, mm. And so... Maybe we'll we'll kind of reframe again as what, at macro level. What is the goal of an ecological restoration? So when you're approaching a plan for restoring this creek, uh, what's the goal, and and how do you sort of identify your tactics? Wow, that's a that's a you're asking a question that people all over the world, ecologists all over the world, are asking themselves because. When restoration activity first started with people like Alva Leopold back in the 1930s, the goal was, well, when European settlers came into areas, um, 
things seemed to be working really well. There, there was, the land was very productive. The soils were building. Creeks were, uh, you know, wildlife was abundant. Creeks were full of fish. Lakes were full of fish. The water was clean. So let's, let's try to recreate that environment from the 1840s, say. Um, and now we can't do that anymore because the environment's different. We have invasive plants that have been come over, come over from Asia or Europe to North America. The climate is changed. Winters are not as cold. Summers are hotter and drier. So we can't restore 1840 because that environment doesn't exist anymore. So you hit on a huge issue that if you're going to be a restoration person and, and go out this weekend and um, plant willows along streams in, in Idaho or whatever to restore good wildlife habitat, you have to think, well, what is the environment becoming and how do I put these plants in the ground to deal with that? It's, it's something people are, we're making this up as we go along. We're doing experiments and trying to figure it out. I love that you said designing a planting is like arranging places at a holiday dinner with family and friends. Everyone has their quirks, strengths, and weaknesses. <laughs> yeah, that comes out of my own family. Sometimes our Thanksgiving dinners can be kind of a challenge. But yeah, you, you, it's like the old gardening maxim. You put the, put the right plant in the right spot. And so one of the things you do when you're getting to know a piece of land is learn Basically, learn the soil, learn the learn the sun, and learn how how different areas respond to the seasons, and figure out what is the right plant for this spot. It's a it's a wonderful sort of way to make a connection, sort of like intellectual. I, I understand these plants' needs and, and the biology of it, but but also an emotional one is that this this plant is is going to really thrive here. And projection, right? You got to guess what the climate is in a hundred years, and then you have to test and adjust. Exactly, exactly. And again, this is a big debate going on all over the world, is it um, how we're going to help plants and animals cope with the climate change that's coming down the road. Um, so people are using all sorts of strategies. From <clears throat> You've probably heard of projects like wildlife corridors where, where the Department of Transportation is saying, well, we need to get help wildlife build, build bridges or underpasses for wildlife to go from one side of the highway to the other without getting killed. And people are thinking the same scale, what if plants... Uh, need to start moving north because it's getting too warm for them in their traditional areas. How are they going to get there if we have a big farming area that's all developed for suburban development and there's no place for them to go? And so, you know, do we have to make these corridors where basically plants and animals can migrate to new habitat as the climate changes? So all these are big questions people are wrestling with. So in 2005, you planted over 3,000 trees and shrubs, and you talk about the red alders as a pioneering species, and you point out mm-hmm. the intricate chemistry and, and the fixation process, and I'm thinking it, it pretty much is rocket science or equally complex uh, as to figuring out how deep the hole needs to be, um, what type of nutrients need to be around, um, what, how these plants will thrive and what will the dangers be to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the red alder, wonderful trees. They have they have um, nitrogen fixing bacteria in their roots. Well, if if you've gardened, you you've worked with pea plants or beans, and they do the same sort of sort of chemistry. So they're, they're tiny little bacterial cells that live in the soil, and they have the biochemical machinery, very sophisticated uh, machines, to take nitrogen from the atmosphere, which you know, you and I and plants can't use. It's just inert. We breathe it in and breathe it out. And they transform that, uh, what people call molecular nitrogen, into nitrates or ammonia-based um, compounds 
that that can be used to build build a, a grass plant or a cedar tree or a human being. Um, so and that's all going on underground in the roots of these red alder trees. So we we've planted a lot of those, and and they'll be adding nutrients to the soil um, thanks to the bacteria in their roots. Yeah. So each tree has its own sort of biology, its own needs and own history. And you said that trees and shrubs are constantly monitoring their own bodies and their surroundings for signs of danger and, and then reacting accordingly. Yes, that's been something that's really come out of been fascinating, just <clears throat> emerged from research in, in, in biology over the past, well, very recent, maybe 20 years, is that people used to think, well, what plants just sit there? And, and they're they're a little bit stupid, you know. They don't really know what's going on. They don't have nerve systems and, and eyes and ears the way we do. But what 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 we've discovered is that they're they're really sophisticated systems for monitoring what's going on. They're even they're plants routine like sagebrush, you know, sage plants. There've been wonderful experiments where if if you start clipping or let a caterpillar attack a sage plant nearby sage within a meter or two will sense that that their molecules release when the caterpillar attacks it and and uh the other plants essentially smell that they they get those molecules and they they set off a reaction where that nearby plant will start to produce more defensive compounds in case that insect comes over and starts chewing on it so that kind of thing is going on the plants know which light is coming from which direction and what, how much blue wavelength and red wavelength and green wavelength is in it. Um, so they're, they're really smart. They're, they, they know what's going on in their world. All right, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and talk about the advantages of the invasive. You mentioned, you mentioned them just briefly, but we'll dig a little deeper into that and, and maybe the, the talk about the um, focus on local versus global and why that's important. This is Ellie Newman, and I'm speaking with Scott Freeman. He's the author of Saving Tarbu Creek, One Family's Quest to Heal the Land, uh, illustrated by Susan Leopold Freeman. And this is KDPI 88.5 FM. Community Radio, drop-in, listener-supported. We're streaming live at kpifm.org 24-7. All right, we're back. Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm speaking with Scott Freeman about his new book, Saving Tarby Creek. So, Scott, you mentioned earlier invasives and how these exotics have been sort of littered across the world and, and that that causes some problems. And one element is of that, of what we were just talking about before the break, is that they spend less time protecting themselves. They don't have to react so much to the environment because they're not used to that environment, and so they grow more quickly. Right, right. They have a they have a uh, advantage in that when people have have brought new species and put them in new places around the world, the general pattern is if one takes off and becomes what we call an invasive, which means it starts to take over and and actually outcompete the native plants or animals in the area. That's what what people mean by an invasive starts to become a problem ecologically. The general pattern is that what we find is that, well, when those few individuals came over and started the population, they didn't bring all the normal viruses and bacterial diseases and parasites and herbivores and caterpillars and beetles and bugs that eat those guys. And so back where they're, they're native, they've got to cope with all those dangers and threats that, that are normal in an environment. But sometimes in the new environment, when those are missing, 
they don't have to spend time and energy uh, battling off those kinds of diseases. And so they have, they can throw all their energy into growing. And that's the unfair, what I call ecological, um, it's not ecological fair play because they have this um, quirky advantage that have, has been a byproduct of humans moving them around. So yeah, that's, they just grow like men. And, and if you're trying to restore an area, often what you have to do is kind of try to beat, either learn to live with the invasives or um, sort of keep them down to a dull roar so that the native plants you're trying to reintroduce have a chance to get started. So throughout the book and, and throughout our, our world, our natural world especially, there are kind of these red flags that keep popping up. Delicate balance, delicate balance, delicate balance, you know, tread lightly. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we can talk about a few of those. Um, in Carl's Forest, um, you talk about that Carl had said when you were uh, visiting a grove of old growth trees, his, his reaction was looking up and saying, think of all the fixed CO2, um, which is, is, uh, makes sense that he would say that, and it makes more sense to the reader, reader at the end of the book as to what this means. And you, uh-huh. talk, you talk about throughout the book this balance of um, the, the natural destruction and destruction and the utilization of resources and then the overutilization of resources um, and how that progresses. And one part of that is the destruction of the rainforest. And you talk about um, clear-cutting um, and then uh, the, the pasture and that, that with a clear-cut, it's easier to reforest. But one thing I want to talk about is the negative feedback loops from fires. And I wonder if you might explain that, because I thought in all of this, something that it keeps reminding you is these things aren't black and white. Um, there are contradictions. There are dichotomies. There is give and take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for example, you mentioned forest fires and trees. If, when we're putting more CO2 into the air, that's actually, it's a nutrient for plants. Plants have to take in CO2, and then through photosynthesis, they transform that into sugars and, and grow. Um, so that's that's when you add, if you do an experiment and you add CO2, treat, plants will grow faster. So that should pull more CO2 out of the air and reduce global warming. So people call that a negative feedback is the term. But uh, if the air is getting warmer and drier, in the Rocky Mountains or the Cascade Mountains, as it, as it is happening right before our eyes now, then forest fires become um, more frequent, and we're seeing that every every wildfire season now, <laughs> and because the plants are drying out and more susceptible, and so when if forest fires are more frequent or more intense, then more CO2 is going into the air after a forest fire is released all that CO2. And that's a positive feedback. That's putting more CO2 back into the air. So it, it, it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. That, that certainly is, is evident. Complicated and also super cool, it, it, the combination of the two. Yes, uh-huh. So you, yeah. you talk about the farmland and the forest as a Hamil- Hamilton-Jeffersonian split and that both have a place in a healthy rural economy and landscape. So maybe you could define those two and then and talk about how they, they, they each have a place. Well, my, um, my American history is not too stellar, but from what I understand is that that was one of the founding sort of debates when the United States was first getting organized is that Alexander Hamilton sort of epitomized um, the, the strain of political thought that said we need a very strong federal government and um, institutions like the Federal Reserve to manage money and, and collect tax and institutions to collect taxes and run the federal government. And 
that was a little more urban oriented and um, uh, commercial maybe. And then the sort of Jeffersonian ideal was the, the, the phrase was always the yeoman farmer, the um, individual who was out uh, starting a farm and being self-sufficient. And that was sort of the backbone of democracy. And so that threat has, has still present in our culture and, uh, there's sort of a parallel now that we that we're seeing in in our, the rural area around Tarboot Creek, where small forest landowners like us and our friends who are starting farms and and, and orchards and cideries and other small agricultural businesses are kind of the Jeffersonians, and then they're the gigantic timber companies, forest products companies that are uh, that are there to. Um, um, grow and and make commodities two by fours two by sixes plywood and that's where I think that uh, that the economy sort of breaks down and, and I would claim that for a healthy rural area for a healthy rural landscape we need both elements um, but it's certainly not either or that um, you know we should turn over I don't think as a culture we should turn over rural areas to big commodity production. There's a place for small independent producers to to create a good life for themselves. Well, it's like we've all got to get along and there's a place for everyone. And you experienced that. You said if your goal is to live with the land instead of just on it, you have to accept organisms that live there more or less on their own terms. Um, so we're talking beavers. Uh, the beavers <laughs> arrived. They were a big problem, yeah. and and now they're your your prime attraction for visitors and family. So, so uh, yeah, what was that, that experience after, like? After the book, after the book was complete, so I wrote I write in the book that you were just made reference to beavers arrived, and that's for salmon biologists. If you love to fish, eat salmon, or fish for salmon, or just enjoy them and watching them, beaver dams are great. They create the best salmon habitat possible. So you really celebrate beavers coming back in and and and. Um, doing what they do to a to a stream and ponding and damming and so forth. So we had this wonderful little dam in our place and created a pond and we had tons of wildlife and frogs and birds and as you say, everybody who visited want to go see what the beavers are going to do. And then, and then uh, the beavers. I don't know if they ran out of food or what happened, but the the family took off or disappeared. And so they weren't maintaining the dam. And we have big winter floods in, when we have storms here in the winter, and the dam blew out. So the, the pond drained. So instead of this beautiful pond full of kingfishers and ducks and stuff, we had this big muddy mess with a bunch of dead trees around it because they'd flooded out. And then an invasive species that's notorious throughout North America called reed canary grass moved in. And so instead of our best habitat, this wonderful beaver pond, we had nine-foot-high um, this jungle of reed canary grass, which is just miserable for wildlife. So then it was like, oh, man, back to work here. And for the last few years, we've been trying to beat back the reed canary grass and get willows and cottonwoods and spruce trees. Well, yeah, I had never realized that grasses could be the enemy. And also you had you had to fight the beavers off from eating all your newly planted trees and especially your favorite, yeah, your right. favorite one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We would, we have to, we've, we've ended up using chicken wire, um, which is still fairly affordable for us, but... Yeah, we had to experiment with all sorts of ways of experimenting with um, protecting the little saplings. You know, we planted from tiny little twigs, and these were like our own little babies here. And then the beavers would come and just mow them down. So we 
Yep, we had to we had to wire them to well, keep the beaters well, and off. I think so that example them. is so telling of the whole process of restoration because at first you didn't even know what, who, how your trees were being eaten, and then once you discovered you know who the culprit was, um, you had to think about all the ways of responding. Do you kill them? Do you lure them elsewhere? Um, do you trick them? Um, how do you how do you learn to live together? Because you also then come to the realization or the memory that you need these beavers to have a, a healthy pond. That's right. If you're going to make good habitat, they're part of the part of the solution. Um, but you're right. You know, if the if the pond's in the wrong place, they could flood a road, and that's going to be a problem for everybody in the community. So. It is a. It's just a. Con, it's a process. It's a constant management of what are they up to, and um, are things looking okay, or do we have to adjust what we're doing here? And they're going to make mistakes along the way, and they're uh, you know testing oh, and retesting. Yeah, we, make, we make lots of mistakes. That's one of the things you have to you have to just realize that it's going to be. It is going to be a process. You're going to learn a lot from the land as as you work with it. And that that's okay. That's part of nature. And so let's talk a little bit about extinction. And we'll start maybe with the cranes and comebacks and, and why we should care. I thought you had a great story that really was so fantastic at leading the reader to understand why we need to care um, or that it's important to care about, about extinction yep. and if something goes away and diversification. Yeah, I was writing about cranes because the first job I had out of college um, was was working for a group that was was trying to work on saving these the cranes are these gigantic birds that live in wetlands all over the world, and they were because wetlands have been exploited so much globally, cranes were really struggling. Almost half the species were in danger of extinction. So this little group in Wisconsin was trying to get people galvanized around the world to do something with them. And then I was doing education programs for them, and so we were worried about the uh, we wanted to get local communities and school kids and stuff involved in in um, helping to to try to bring sandhill cranes um, back to the Midwest. And one of the poignant uh, things that was going on here is that my wife's grandfather, Aldo Leopold, back when he bought this farm in 1935, there were no cranes in the in the. There was a gigantic marsh just across the road from them but no cranes in it. The sandhills had been almost extinct, uh, extricated in, in, in the state. And he wrote this heartrending essay called A Marshland Elegy about their demise and just saying, you know, when we lose something like a, like a crane or a, um, um, the auk or the bison or the animals who have, who have almost gone extinct, we lose something of ourselves. The, the planet did less and our lives are less. So he tried to express that in this essay, and it was wonderful when I had this job working with this little group is that cranes were starting to come back. That, And so, again, that kind of optimism you were talking about earlier, that if we get busy, if we care, if we do make good decisions and, and do things right, um, good things can happen. And cranes have come back in, in some parts of the world. It's been a wonderful success story. 
So you say there are practical, ethical, and personal reasons why we should care. And you say that the idea that any organism lives and acts independently of others is a myth. The realization that all organisms are connected is a profound insight. And that developing a connection, a sense of the ecological and spiritual bond among everything that is or has been alive, um, not just what mm-hmm. is alive, but what has been alive, um, what does that mean to you? And what does it feel like to live in that space where you really are... Um, acknowledging that realization and, and valuing it. That's that's what I call living a natural life. If you, uh, if it's just sort of thinking, centering your life around uh, how much stuff you have or how much money you're making or whether your stuff is better than somebody else's stuff and comparing yourself. If, if you just um, sort of love who you are and you have your, your, your needs met so that you, you can live in the world, um, but then if you really focus your values on the quality of your relationships with people you care about and the world at large and the quality of your relationship to the land, to the environment around you, that to me that is a natural life. <clears throat> and it gets us, I think, to a place that's a kind of life that's much more rewarding and meaningful and purposeful. Um, and it just makes people happier than they are when they're centering their life around, am I good enough? Do I have enough stuff? Is my car big enough? Um, are new enough. I think it just it, it centers us uh, with who we really are as human beings. Well, we talked about the um, incredibly heightened levels of depression, not only in America, but throughout the world earlier in the show. And you say at the end of the book that this book is really a call to help us find a new way. And the elements of that way um, are belonging, being part of a community, and participating. And participating with something that has purpose and meaning to prevent something that is important to all of us, mass extinction and, and widespread human suffering. So that then is this call to be the greatest generation of all with this unified goal. And I'm thinking right there's your answer to depression, right? It it checks all the boxes, a sense of belonging, a part of a community, purpose, meaning, action to take. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And to me, there are a couple elements and you use that keyword engaged. It's it's a life of action. You know, you have to, you can't just talk about what you value or, or, um, you know, the Bible will tell you that trees are known by, by their fruit. And, and you want your actions, your life, what you do, the decisions you make, how you spend your weekends. Um, and, what you know, do you get out once or twice a year and help help plant some plants and restore a natural area? <clears throat> so engagement is huge. And you give us a simple list, which I thought, okay, there it is. There's the answer. And it's an easy starting place. And it's not complex. And anyone can do it. Um, Limit family size, favor locally grown food, prefer smaller and more efficient homes, transfer the time and money spent on driving to more enjoyable activities, contribute at the preservation of wild places through taxes, action or private donations. And then I added one that I took from another part of your book, where you say, consider and evaluate your values. You know, do you really value materialism over over the depth of relationship with, with others and with nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you think of the really meaningful times in your life, it's usually when you were doing something you really believed in, and often when you're helping others. Like, I love the stories that came out of the, the, the tragedy with the hurricanes in Houston last, last, uh, late last summer and early last fall, where you know, whole neighborhoods were flooded. People were sitting on their rooftops um, struggling for their lives. Neighborhood volunteers, you know, of all political persuasions, of every race and creed, were out in boats in this common mission to help these people survive. And, and 
you know, for a lot of people, that is going to be one of the most meaningful things they've ever done in their life. Like, I really mattered, and I made a difference. And it wasn't about, again, the material stuff in my life. It was about service, about helping others, and in, in our case, helping a damaged piece of land come back to life. There's no feeling to me as good as, as walking to an area that, you, that I remember what it looked like 15 years ago um, when, when our uh, boys were working with us every weekend and watching these trees grow and realize they're going to be here for hundreds or actually potentially in our neighborhood a thousand years and that generations will, will benefit from the work we're doing today. It just, it just, people get it once, once you're, you're doing it as a, this is good. Your, your book reminded me, we're mostly good, and, and most everyone is good, and we want to help. And when there's a call to action, we, we step in, and, and as you said, we've never felt better. We've never felt more valuable and more important, more connected. And I think maybe my favorite or one of my favorite sentences of your book, uh, Saving Tarboo Creek, is genetic or biological differences among human races are trivial compared with what is routinely observed among populations of other animals and plants. Oh yeah, that's been there have been even more recent papers. Um, you know, as a scientist, I, I follow this stuff all the time, just professionally. And uh, people have gone beyond to investigate. You know, is there a biological thing called race? <clears throat> and the, the data coming out now now are saying no. So we're we're some people are sort of obsessed with skin color. And uh, recent data have shown that all the Genetic variants that are called alleles, all, the, all the, these variants that are responsible for the diversity of skin color that we see all over the world that we think are so important in defining who people are, are all those, all that genetic variation was, is present in Africa and was at the time when humans first became. And so the whole idea that we're separate races is ludicrous. Just biologically, it doesn't exist. So that kind of insight from science, I think, can, is another thing can help us make better people that is, oh, we made this up. Let's quit, let's quit doing that. And focus, on, and focus on maybe what's important to all of us. Yeah, who, who, who are people? You know, the old line about looking into people's hearts, and, or Martin Luther King's wonderful line about, about being judged by the content of your character. That's, that's really what we're after. All right. I've been speaking with Scott Freeman, author of Saving Tarbu Creek, One Family's Quest to Heal the Land. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to read the book and, and so wonderful to speak with you. Where can people go to learn more about your project, um, the book, and what they can do? There's a website uh, called scottfreemanauthor.com. Um, and people can find out more about the book. And I'm posting news about the Turbo Creek Project. If you want to follow along sort of the adventures month by month, you can get more information there. And are, are you taking volunteers still? Can people come and, and join a plantathon or, or oh, dig yeah. some holes? We're, we're, yep, there's a plantathon uh, this weekend, actually. And then we're going to be planting our little local on our place. Our planting days will be happening over the next six to eight weeks. So there's your purpose, value, and and meaning. Um, Well, thanks so much, Scott. Ellie, thanks so much. Great talking with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.